Two of the very best operators. Mark Dumpy in the garage. These two do not like each other. There are two parts of the story as all Red flag, this is a suspended uh, race. Okay, welcome back. Episode 24 of Parked Up. My name is Grant Rowley. We're powered by the race fuels. And for the 24th straight week, I'm joined by Tony Delberto. Tony, here we go. Here we go. I'm excited about this episode. Not sure why, but uh, I'm just really excited to tick off another episode of Parked Up. Lots of racing on the weekend, Grant. So yeah. we've got plenty to discuss. We've got a really uh, special guest, a guy it's that very I like. Very special, very special. We both like him a lot. His name's Mark Larkham. These days seen in the pit lane covering the supercars for the broadcast. Does an amazing job. Mm. We're, we're going to ask him heaps of questions about about that, about COVID, about the future of the sport, uh, and, and a whole bunch of others. So looking forward to talking to Larka. Hang around for that. We also have a, a special little treat that we offered up to our Facebook fans to ask them about their first road car. Mm. This was a good one. Everyone's got a first road car. You'd hope so. So, and we got some really cool responses, and we'll go through some of our Facebook followers' feedback uh, a little bit later on. But uh, I also spoke to a couple of uh, legends of our sport as well, a few young guns, mm-hmm. uh, and a couple of the older chaps as well to see what they uh, had as their first uh, road weapon. But before we get to them, Tony, your first road car. My first car was a Holden Tirana GDR XU1. It was white. Sounds like a museum piece, not a... It really was. Now, this car got traded in on a new vehicle at our Delberto Holden dealership up in Echuca. And my uncle called my dad and said, look, I've got this Tirana. What do you think? Do you think Tony would like it? And it was in immaculate condition. Uh, There was no rust. It ran reasonably well for the age of the car uh, but the fact that it had no rust we we grabbed it in a heartbeat i think it cost twelve thousand dollars which at the time was probably you know a decent amount of money for me at this time 2020 twelve thousand dollars is a lot of money yeah especially for a car that was uh built in 1972 or three or whatever it was so it's a long time ago uh but anyway we got hold of it and our family's always had a bit of a passion for older cars and and buying them, not driving them, and holding on to them as a collector's uh, item. But uh, I certainly wanted to get my hands on it as an 18-year-old to drive this car around the streets. It sounded amazing. Now, we fixed it up a little bit, and I ended up selling the car about a year later for $30,000. Wow. Yeah. That's a nice investment. It was the only investment I've ever had in a car that has increased in value. So how did why did it increase so much? Did you what did you do to it between purchase and sale? I think my uncle just did such a good job of uh, trading the car in. <laughs> Whoever owned it before was probably a little old lady that didn't realise the value, and the car w- was in, in immaculate condition. We got the engine running a little bit better, and we just tidied it up generally. So it probably looked a little smarter than when we first had it. But there was a little bit of rust starting to creep in. And Dad said, right, I think it's time to let go of this car. And that was perfect for me because I had my eye on a V6 Commodore Ute. I couldn't have a V8 because I was still on my P's. So I had my eye on this V, I think it was a VY or VZ. And that's what I wanted to get my hands on. I needed roughly twenty-five, twenty-six thousand dollars $26,000 to buy it. 
And yeah, so I got the 30 for the Tirana and away I went. Dad wasn't real happy though that I wasted that money on a new car. But anyway, <laughs> I knew better. What did you have, Grant? Um, well, my first car was not an investment <laughs> because I bought it for 800 and I think I sold it maybe two years later, probably less than two years later for about 400 or 500 That's not bad. Yeah, it was a 1974 Volkswagen Beetle, the last Beetle that they that they built before 2000 or whatever it was when they brought out that the new version. Uh, I absolutely loved the car. It was my ticket to freedom, you know, mm. as a 17-year-old in New South Wales at the time. You could get your license when you were 17 or get your P's. And yeah, as, as soon as I got my license, we were looking for cars. And uh, it happened that the uh, young girl next door to our place was selling her car. Mm. And uh, dad came in and let me know that this thing was for sale. And uh, I think I only had 400 bucks. And uh, mum and dad spotted me the other 400. And um, yeah, I had, a, I had a car and I, I could not believe it. Like... Uh, yeah. I didn't even know if I was that confident driving driving by myself, but uh, I clearly remember the first day I drove it down the street by myself with no one in the passenger seat and yep. and just rocking along. I drove straight to my mate's house and yeah, could not believe it. So um, that that served me uh, really really well. The thing was an absolute shit box. It had so <laughs> much rust. Yeah, we had to replace the fuel tank it was leaking fuel and i thought i don't know why this thing's leaking fuel that, that mm. there was like literally a rust hole in the fuel tank so um but look it taught uh, it taught some good lessons it taught me to respect the vehicle respect the road rules i probably didn't respect the road rules mm. in, in in some ways but um you know we didn't shunt it thank christ i didn't shunt it because yeah. i would have lost my legs for sure the thing would have crumbled around me um but uh, yeah, heaps, the thing, of, like heaps with, of funny stories. With the Tirana, and, and probably similar with your car there, when you're doing 80 k's down the road, these older vehicles, it feels like you're doing like 160. You know, like there's wind noise, the engine's screaming. Um, and yeah, you don't feel quite as safe as what you're doing, you know, newer cars now. The, the downside of having a car that was sort of like a bit of a collector's item, I sort of miss some of that stage where you just throw your mates in the back, you grab Maccas, they'd probably have a you know, cigarette or a drink or something yep. because I was so, I wanted to keep this car in pristine condition. So um, I probably missed a little bit of that. And my mate, James Fleming, he used to do a lot of the driving. He had like a shitbox uh, Corolla or something and uh, he didn't care about that. So we just thrashed that car and my car was just sitting there all um, you know, clean and tidy. So that was the only thing, Grant, but uh, I got rid of it and uh, made a pretty penny, which I was happy about. Yeah, cool. Yeah, first cars are something to uh, treasure. I guess you're young anyway, and anything you do when you're young is cool. Mm. Certainly uh, having that freedom to drive your own beast out on the road very very memorable it's liberating memorable times very <laughs> i got in trouble a couple of times of course and a lot of people do get in trouble and i think the most trouble i ever got in though was um when i was uh, polled a whole bunch of mates in after one day of school uh three mates plus my brother in the back he would have been pretty young at the time he would have only been 12 or 13 um and i was uh, dropped everyone home but uh two people in the front four in the back of this little <laughs> right. volkswagen and I thought, oh, I'm probably, hopefully I don't get busted. Like, surely no one's going to tell mum and dad that I've, 
that I've done this and chucked because uh, there was only two two seater in the back, so mm. should have only had four. I had six. What's uh, the logic here? Like, what was your logic thinking the, that you weren't going to get in trouble? Well, I just didn't count on the fact caught. that my brother was going to tell mum and dad that oh. uh, that I'd done this. So I got ratted from uh, my own flesh and blood. Ratted me out. So, so you didn't uh, worry about the police pulling you over. You just worried about mum and dad oh, kicking yeah. your butt. Yeah. Yeah, well, one of the one of the boys that I dropped home, his dad was a, a policeman. So, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, good times. So, uh, look, I also spoke to um, a couple of famous faces about their first car, and there's a couple of good tales here. So, the first one I did, Jason Bright. Yeah, so my, my first road car was a VH White Commodore. Uh, it basically got my go kart trailer to all the race meetings around Victoria and, you know, pretty much ran that thing into the ground. It pretty much did all the go-kart race meetings around Victoria and, um, you know, used to tow the go-kart trailer around. So I've got pretty fond memories of, uh, of that car and, you know, it, was, it certainly served me very well. So Bridey pretty sensible just using his VH to tow his car around to go-kart tracks. Well, you can see where his head was at at that time. He didn't really care about his car so much. He just wanted to go go-karting and racing. Next up, I spoke to Will Brown. Yeah, so uh, my first car was actually a Mark II Ford Escort. So a uh, pretty cool little car. I actually used to, I used to, I think I got it when I was like 13 years old. And I used to rip around the paddock in it doing handbrakes and uh, nearly crashing it all the times. So had that and uh, then ended up getting a Mark I Escort. So, uh, you know, I loved the Escorts when I was younger and uh, they were pretty cool cars to just muck around in actually. I'm not surprised, Grant, that Will's first car ended up in the pa- in the paddock. I've seen the way he drives a TCR car, and he doesn't mind throwing that thing across as many curves as he can. So uh, that's a cool little story there. And the next person we spoke to, your team boss, David Wall. <laughs> well, my first road car was a Toyota Corolla. Uh, I think from memory it was a 98 model. And it was the Carlos Saints special. There's plenty of funny stories. I'm not sure if I should be saying any of them, but um, he used to do amazing front-wheel drive burnouts with five people in the car. Um, but obviously on the on the paddock um, or in the in the family farm on the bitumen there, it wasn't so much out in the street. But uh, yeah, there's there's plenty of other stories. We used to um, go and jump them over uh, certain areas and um, make up our own little our own little things in life. But as I say, I'm not sure if you should be saying anything about them. <laughs> so the theme at the moment, Tony, is paddock basher. These, these cars seem to end up uh, in the dirt somewhere. Yeah, a lot of race drivers have that background where they've had the opportunity to thrash a car before they get their license on the road. So they sort of get that experience before they're actually uh, driving on the road or driving a car on the racetrack. So I'm not surprised, Grant, that we're seeing a few people being a bit cheeky in paddocks. Well, speaking of cheeky, I spoke to S5000 driver, former supercars driver, James Golding. Uh, my first car was a Ford Laser manual, and I had an incident on the way to work, GRM, in, in the wet. The traffic banked up and I wasn't concentrating. Ran up the bum of a car and that was the end of it, basically. It got written off, but it was fine. It was just a bumper that was damaged because the car wasn't worth that much. They, they wrote it off. And I ended up buying it back off the insurance company as a bit of a paddock basher. And um, many mates took it out on some property. And, uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun in it until until it died, basically. And, and yeah, that was the end of it. But 
we maximised it. <laughs> Has he even got his licence? I mean, the, the guy looks about 16 years old. Uh, funny story there. Uh, and again, we're back to paddock bashes. So that's where these... Uh, these cars that we start in and thrash they end up finishing their life either upside down or on fire in a paddock. <laughs> and uh, after all the paddock bashing, I thought uh, I'd better speak to someone who actually does paddock bashing for a living. So I spoke to Neil Bates to ask him what his first car was. Of course, Neil, rally champion, legend of the Australian dirt. Let me guess though, let me guess. Was it a Volvo? It was not a Volvo. Oh, okay. Uh, my first car was a, a Mark One RS2000 Escort, which sounds exotic, but I bought it for $1,200 and I did hill climbs in it uh, on the weekends and it spent plenty of time in the forest. Probably my funniest story was uh, going through the forest, just honing my skills, coming around the corner and there was a, a police car there. I thought I was in trouble, but they were actually bold and they waved us down and asked for a push to get them out. So that was probably my funniest ever story with that car. So there you go, Neil Bates uh, with his Escort, but sensibly he raced his car on the dirt or or in in hill climbs. So that's a neat little first car story. So there you go. Uh, Everyone's got their own little story, but I guess the main key to it is that first cars typically get thrashed. Yeah, they do. And we had a really good response on Facebook again, same as last week where we had about 60 people comment. I'm not sure whether we had 60 this week, but... I think um, we had 62. 62, there you go. Awesome to see the engagement from everyone on Facebook. So thank you very much. We appreciate the comments, but also the photos that you posted as well. Uh, It was cool to see your first car that you ever owned. Yeah, we were pleasantly surprised with the amount of feedback we had of course everyone's had a first car mm. everyone's got a tale to tell uh justin forrest uh, had a datsun 1600 rod smith had an fb tirana so that was like the prior model to what what you had yep. so uh you know real old school uh graham campbell in 1964 compact fairlane what this is telling me is we've got a lot of old listeners, Tony. <laughs> uh, Paul Bullock, he had a 1990 Peugeot 405 and said that he claimed a, uh, a kangaroo and that, uh, that, that didn't do the front of it any good. Um, Aidan Clark, a 1994 Hyundai XL. So that was the model just before the Hyundai XLs that we see racing racing around now. They were really boxy and square and they, they, they were just a terrible looking car especially for 94 where cars started to get that yep. nice bit more shape. shape yeah but they uh for that 97 98 models of xls they took off do you remember the streets were just filled mm. with those things mm. that them and lancers there we go uh john alford in 1977 suzuki lj50v with a 540 cc three-cylinder two-stroke engine my lord it uh it uh, would have taken quite some time to get that thing up and going uh joanne hodge uh chrysler uh, galant an ex-rally car she says it went like stink donna eccles a datsun 180b a beautiful little car as long as they're uh, looked after they were an absolute treat kira barber she says a 2013 ford fiesta i'm showing my age yes you're showing that you're really young kira <laughs> that's the age you're showing 
Uh, and Al Sewell said he had a chocolate brown HQ Holden that he bought for 500 bucks. So I really like uh, I really like Al's thing. He, he also posted a photo, so I thought that was really cool. We're definitely going to send him one of the very, very famous Race Fuels hats. Perfect. I haven't got mine yet, though. Well, you're going to have to enter. But I, I did see some, pe- eligible, though. some people were saying on there that uh, your first car deserved to get a hat because uh, yes. it, it shouldn't have been shouldn't have been beaten. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, we'll give you we'll give you a hat as well. Okay. Good. Mark, good. Mark Tierney will be more than happy to donate you a hat as long as you pay him twenty dollars for it. <laughs> He'll be more than happy to ha- hand one over. These hats aren't for sale, Tony. Only on, you can only get them if you're um, in the Race Fuels family or if you win via the Parked Up podcast. I'm in the Race Fuels family now. He's you a are. sponsor. You are. We'll get you a hat. We'll okay, get you perfect. a hat. So Al Searle, we'll get in touch with you and you and your chocolate brown HQ have, uh, <laughs> have won a Race Fuels hat. Um, so as we're talking about Race Fuels, let's just uh, hear a very quick message from them, Tony. Racing cars need racing fuel and Race Fuels is the best, most convenient way to power through your next meeting. Our famous Elf Race 102 is the control fuel of choice for the Touring Car Masters. It's available at the Bowsers, at Sydney Motorsport Park and the Bend. And it's available in drums at Winton. Imported direct from France, Elf Race 102 is affordable horsepower. For more details, head to racefuels.com.au. Is that our good mate Cameron Bandon Duncan with four names? Cameron, four names, that's him. He did a nice job there and we do appreciate the support of Race Fuels, not the Race Fuels Grant. Okay, get that right. The Race Fuels. It can be whatever you want. Now, there was a lot of racing on the weekend, so let's check out and recap in our news. An excellent throw to the news there, Tony. And, of course, the news is now brought to us by our good friends at motorsportwebsites.com.au. They offer full branding services, website and logo design, team and driver clothing, and race car livery design and install. You can check them out, Tony D, at motorsportwebsites.com.au. The new parkedup.com.au is going to come very shortly. Cool. I've, I've, sent, uh, I've sent all the info over and uh, I have no doubt it's going to be built very, very soon. Can't wait to see that. In the news, though, a, uh, a huge week of supercars news with the revealing of the final look of the championship mm-hmm. after this week's race in Townsville. We're going to Tail and Bend mm. for two events. A couple of weeks off, and then a big race at Bathurst. One week after, uh, we were meant to do the 1,000 in these times. We can forgive yeah. uh, the 1,000 being one week later. How is it going to affect your world in the, in the co-driver world? Well, we're finally hearing some information from the teams, and it's been fairly quiet from all the teams uh, regarding information around Bathurst and travel plans and all that sort of stuff. I think there's six Victorian co-drivers uh, that do need to travel uh, into New South Wales or Queensland, depending if they're going to test or whatever it might be, uh, but have to go through that two-week uh, quarantine period. So uh, we still don't fully know, but the rough plan will be we'll quarantine in New South Wales two weeks prior to the Bathurst 1000, uh, and that will either be the end of September or basically the start of October. So we're going to do two weeks in a hotel uh, because we're dirty Victorians 
and then we'll go straight into the Bathurst 1000. No testing by my team in particular, DJR Team Penske, that I know of. Uh, so, yeah, go straight into the race weekend and get on with it, really. Yeah, you'll be fine. You've done it heaps of times before. It's an easy track, goes up and it goes down, and you'll be fine. Just do it 161 times and try and be the you first know, across the line. You know what? Now we've actually got some plans around the event i'm feeling a lot more comfortable because before there was just no information and it was like well, are we doing the race what's happening i want enough time to prepare myself but now we're it's locked in there's some rough plans being thrown around then you sort of like mentally start to approach the race meeting and, and get yourself ready for it so i'm very much looking forward to it i mean we've, we've been spectators for the last you know four or five months watching these guys having having a blast going racing and uh, we've been on the couch watching. So it hasn't been ideal, the preparation, but all the co-drivers are in the same boat. It's going to be really interesting to see, uh, you know, for some of the co-drivers, like a Brock Feeney, for instance, which is his first Bathurst 1000, how he copes with that sort of pressure with one of the, one of the leading drivers with James Courtney. You know, for myself, I think it's my 14th or 15th Bathurst. So I've 15th. certainly... 15th. So I've certainly... Done it a few times, but it, it really doesn't make it a, a huge amount easier. Um, it's not like you, you just raced there last weekend. And But the beauty uh, on my side is that, you know, I've been with the team five years. I've been with Fabs for four. You know, we know that relationship. So I feel as though we've got a bit of a head start on some of the combinations anyway. Cool. Well, before we get to that big race on that big old mountain, we've got uh, Townsville this weekend. And we've got two races at Tail and Bend. They've mm -hmm. got three genuine different circuit variations that they could use. Do you reckon they should mix it up? I think they should. I mean, let's do the first one with the, the normal layout and then maybe for the second one, change it up. Because the thing is, it's like at Townsville or, or Darwin that we've just seen, by having the same layout, you know, the same contenders are at the front. You know, we might have a little surprise. Someone might get their act together for the second round. But generally, it's the same guys at the front. If we could, you know, change the layout and uh, maybe bring in some different corners that might suit other setups or, or other drivers, it might spice up the results even more. I've actually driven the longest circuit of... 7.7 7 kilometres. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there's a lot of corners get there. Get lost around that Yeah, thing. it goes on forever. I, I did that in the GT car a couple of years ago for the first event they had and they end up canning as driving the long circuit. We did the supercar version because a lot of the uh, amateur drivers were finding it really tricky to know what corner was coming up next. There was just so many to remember. So I think they should, you know, look into it. The, the trick will be whether they can get television coverage all the way around the outside yeah. and, and cover it. So yeah. that will be a little bit of a challenge. I think the track would be quite dirty because it never really gets used, that part of it. But there's heaps of different variations they could use. Mm. I'm, I'm sure they can spice it up. Um, it's going to be interesting. I mean, we saw the results at Townsville last weekend. There's a little bit of a shift uh, towards Triple Eight. Uh, Jamie clawed some points back on Scott McLaughlin. And that championship battle now is getting intense. I think now that Bathurst has been announced as the final round, suddenly people can see an end date and they're like, right, you know, this is happening now. This championship's really alive and Jamie's coming and, uh, you know, everybody's sort of on their toes. So it'll be interesting to see if DJR Team Penske can bounce back this weekend at Townsville and claw back some points on Triple A because they are in fine form. 
Yeah, now we'll uh, we'll talk more supercars with Larco. He's coming up real soon. Uh, but we also had a Formula One race on the weekend in Belgium, and Lewis Hamilton won his fifth race for the season. There's only been seven starts. It doesn't look in any time soon that anyone's going to beat him. Mm. But there was a, a funny little thing that came across my desk during the week, and it was an old news report from the tabloids back in 2013, just at the end of Sebastian Vettel's reign. And the story was, uh, the first paragraph was, Britain's former world champion, Lewis Hamilton, says he fears Formula One fans will lose interest in the sport because Sebastian Vettel is so dominant. <laughs> Do you think he's saying the same thing now? No, absolutely not. I mean, the guy's unstoppable. He He's in a class of his own. He put on pole by half a second. Unbelievable lap. I actually sat on the couch the other day and watched the lap with Steph. She's got no interest in Formula One, but she could she could really appreciate how fast those corners were coming up. So the car looks so balanced. Um, he's doing a great job. He's executing it. You know, he didn't really get headed in the race whatsoever. And to be honest, they felt as though Red Bull were going to be real challengers. Um, the guy that came out uh, that was a real challenge was Daniel Ricciardo yeah, that was and awesome. Renault. So that was really cool to see them actually have the speed they have really good straight line and i think their balance between the aero package uh and just their general setup of their car obviously worked at spa and they were contenders all weekend he put up a big fight at the start of the race to try and get around Verstappen. i think if he could have managed that maybe he could have held on to a, uh, a podium position he's got that little bet with his uh the team manager that he's going to if he does get a podium, Cyril is going to get a tattoo. So he's pushing really hard to try and get that done. But just nice to see Daniel actually get a result for Renault, especially with Renault putting so much effort and resources into his program. Mm. Yep, yep. Hopefully not too long and we might see a podium. It would be good if he could get a couple of podiums before he disappears over to McLaren. Hopefully don't make the Renaults too fast that when he goes to McLaren, <laughs> he's going to get outshone by his old team. So let's wrap up the news with a local story. Andrew Maisie, long-time member of the Supercars and TCR paddock, Touring Car Masters, Australian GT, the bloke's done it all, used to work for your team. He started his own business. He's bought a Pertec franchise and he'll be based at Phillip Island. And to add to that, he's setting up his own race workshop at Phillip Island as well. So he's going to be based like pretty close to the track. So race teams will have the ability to have their cars serviced, repaired or prepped just kilometres away from the island track. So uh, Is this an ad? It does sound a little bit like an ad. He is your mate. He is my mate. No, and we're uh, looking after him. We are looking after him because I'm excited that he's stepped outside the motorsport scene uh, it's tricky, you know, when you get stuck in the motorsport scene, he's been in it for 20 odd years, you seem to be there forever. And I, I like, I, you know, he's obviously not going to let go of it completely, but he's been trying to get this Pertec franchise up and running for, for a while. Pertec are a sponsor of DJ Team Penske as well. Wow. So we, we are thought, for sale, parked up for sale. We thought we'd better give him a run. So let's catch up with Maisie. Best Coast Pertec, Andrew speaking. Yeah, g'day, mate. I've got a tractor and it's blown a hose. Can you help me? <laughs> yep, I can do anything. <laughs> Just watch your address and I'm on my way. <laughs> mate, I'm in Brunswick. Is that too far? Uh, that is a bit out of my area. Okay. But um, let me put you through to the Brunswick branch and I'm sure they can help you. <laughs> 
Ah, mate, uh, a few changes in your world. Now, we we often ask our guests about their COVID period. Um, You've had a pretty positive experience. You've uh, changed your line of work. I mean, obviously, you've been involved in motorsport for a very long time, and you don't want to get away from that so much, but... You've uh, you've done your your study and all your training, and uh, you've opened up your own Pertech franchise. Tell us about it. Yeah, so basically, it all sort of started uh, probably late last year. Um, obviously, with the whole COVID thing, it sort of pushed it out a little bit, but. Um, we got there in the end, you know, I had to get through the COVID stage. So I sort of went and went back to my roots, went, went and worked for the Delbertos as I do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so that got me through um, the the period where we just weren't car racing. And it's, it's weird that it's been this long, but anyway, um, it sort of gave me some time to sort of build, do the business plans and do all my training that I had to do. Um, get all the truck ordered and all that sort of thing, but it's all sort of come to fruition now. And it's been there's been some obstacles like having to go to Sydney through lockdowns and all that sort of thing, but um, it all sort of came together, and here I am. So we're off. Now you you went you basically went live yesterday, and you're waiting for the phone to call. It did call at eight o'clock this morning. So you got your first job this morning. How'd you go with it? Well, that's yesterday was every time the phone rang, I shit my pants. But um, it sort of was the longest day standing in a uniform, sort of looking at what truck I've ever had. But anyway, um, yeah, and then that complete opposite this morning, I'm just having breakfast at eight o'clock. Boom, we're on. So um, now it was good. Sort of got all my stuff together and off I went and showed up and had to do it so um you know i've got some really really good help from the neighboring franchises and i made the call purely just to double check my work but um they were very helpful in that and um yeah got it done now just I waiting remember- for the next phone call <laughs> uh well, well you can't interrupt this phone call right now uh now i reckon okay. this idea has been bubbling away for a few years our race team, when you used to work for our little team, used to be sponsored by Highflex Mobile Hose Service. Now, they're a competitor to Pertech. Has the idea been bubbling away since then? Um, the idea, it's actually funny you say that. I've got all this memorabilia and photos and all that that I bloody can't put up in my office because it's covered in Highflex or NZ. But anyway, the idea more started when I sort of was finishing up DVS with Cam Waters and I was sort of like, you know, what's I, I, I sort of need a change. The motorsport thing's taken its toll on me, all that sort of thing. And I must admit, I looked back at sort of what Cam's dad had done, starting as a mobile service and building the empire that they have in Mildura. And even though I didn't go with that brand at the end, um, Pertex sort of took over and, They've just been awesome in the whole whole development of this business. So they sort of won the package by the end of that, and here I am now. So there's no looking back. Now, we do want to touch on motorsport, though. You you haven't turned your back on it completely. You are going to still have a workshop set up for people that need to prep their race cars uh, or repair their race cars from Phillip Island. Is that the theory behind it? You're going to have this shop open, ready ready to jump when people need it? That's that's right. So basically, 
yeah, you can't give up sort of 20 years in the game just like that, that you'd just go bananas. So basically what I've done, I'm directly opposite the racetrack. So it's sort of a bit of a dream for a, for a motorsport fan to live here. But anyway, and, you know, I'm going to utilise my background. And, yeah, like you said, I'll have a fab shop set up. I'll have a hoist set up. So basically when the, the club racers are down here and they need a bit of a hand or a bit of a chop out, I'll be here to give them a hand. Um, it sort of will help help my little bug that I'll always have for car racing as well as, you know, there'll be the odd GT or TCM race meeting that I'll go to. Um, it's a bit of a hassle because you guys have decided to put TCR and TCM together. So it's sort of, I've got to pick pick what category I'm going to chase. But anyway, um, but yeah, no, nah, this sort of, this business is my full-time baby, but I'll have that little background motorsport thing happening in the background just to sort of keep me, keep me going, I think. It sounds like uh, cheap accommodation when I'm racing down at Phillip Island. <laughs> You're not the first person to say that. I think I'm going to have to put little bungalows down here because I'm going to have race teams and sort of everyone coming to stay, but there's plenty of room for tents and caravans. So uh, we'll start a small bonfire and have the barbecue running for everyone. It'll be good. So there we go. We've got our accommodation sorted for Phillip Island, <laughs> for all of our Phillip Island events right next to the uh, right next to the track. Amazing. Yeah, I'll certainly be knocking on his door trying to get a free bed. Interestingly, though, Maisie didn't really touch on it too much, but he was with Cam Waters when he won his DVS championship, Gary Jacobson when he won his DVS championship. He's been around motorsport and you know worked for some great teams, works for some mediocre teams. TDR? I wasn't going to say that, no. <laughs> no, he's worked for our team for uh, quite a few years as well. So, uh, yeah, he, he's, he's a legend. He's a hard worker, and I'm sure he's going to make the most of this opportunity. So we wish him all the best. Great. Uh, he won't be too far away from racetracks, particularly Phillip Island. He will literally be right there hanging out with those big geese and some, uh, some penguins if they can make it that far offshore. Uh, okay, right, that's the end of the news, and now we get to speak to the man, the legend himself, Mark Larkham. Long-time motorsport industry member, earned his stripes in Formula Ford, raced in Formula Brabham, raced against uh, Mark, the likes of Mark Scaife and Neil Crompton. Uh, he raced and won in supercars, had some horrific accidents, including <laughs> cars catching on fire. But these days, most known for his, uh, some would say, antics on the supercars broadcast, brings the sport to life makes it super easy for the punter to uh, understand. And I don't, I've never watched as much supercars on TV, mm. not since I was in my teens before before this thing became a job. So uh, you get to really appreciate how good he actually is. Yeah, I really enjoy watching Larko on his Hino Hub segment. He does a really good job of breaking it down for the, the average Joe that you know doesn't watch motorsport every week and probably doesn't want to hear about tyre pressures and rake and shockers and all that sort of stuff. He really does just talk about the show, what the drivers are going through, and I think that's really vital, uh, especially when you've got guys like Mark Scaife and Crompton to do all that chat. Um, he's, he, his segments are sort of lighthearted, but really informative as well. So I think he does a great job. I wonder whether when he was you know a driver, if he ever thought 
you know, he'd be so successful in this uh, arena in his life, you know, whether he, that's where he wanted to end up or, you know, we've seen him own his own teams. He's sort of been in every sort of aspect of motorsport, yep. but I feel like he's really excelled in the commentary team. Yep. No, he absolutely tells a an excellent story, makes it super easy to understand, and hopefully he makes sense of some of our questions. So we should get him on the phone right now. We'll dial up the farm, get the old uh, dial-up internet uh, spewing away and and grab Larker. Here we go. And it's great to welcome Mark Larkham onto the Parked Up podcast. Larko, thank you very much for joining us. Always good to have a chat with a couple of old pit lane buddies. It's great to, great to have you and it's uh, great that we've been able to see you on the TVs. Usually we'd ask, uh, the first question, we'd ask, um, you know, how's your COVID story been? We've seen lots of you uh, during that first lockdown. We saw you on the farm. Uh, you've been back at the racetrack, you know, doing pretty much your uh, your regular role. But but uh, your take on on the COVID situation that's been dominating the airwaves? Yeah, well, it's a it's a it's a really good question, isn't it, mate? Because it's had a there's no question it's had a material impact, both you know logistically, um, financially, um, and 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 you know mentally on everyone. Uh, in the sport, uh, and, and I got to say, I, I actually feel guilty some days. So I'm one of the lucky ones, just as a result of me living out here on the farm. Um, I'm kind of a, a little bit away from it. Um, uh, my local community thinks COVID is a cocktail drink, um, so <laughs> we. Um, so, so I've kind of managed to skirt around it to, to a degree. I've been caught up in a few things, but I mean, I, you know, and and. And everyone in and around the sport, I think, is acutely aware uh, of the enormous sacrifice that's been made by, in particular, Victorian teams um, to keep us on the road. And, you know, you, I guess you've got to give that perspective, haven't you? I mean, I'm sure you guys have spoken about it plenty, but, mm. I mean, when everyone bowled up to the Sydney Motorsport Park a week early from that event, they had no idea what they were bowling up or rolling into. Um, that, that's going to mean they're going to get home, you know, Back end of October. Larko, what's and the vibe started. been like? Um, you know what? Su- surprisingly good, but I have a little few private discussions, you know, and, and it's more to throw my arm around a few of the, you know, mm. the people I love up and down pit lane, which is most, and, you know, how you going. And um, it, it is tough. You know, I don't need to name names, but there's, there's, there's some that are, they are really really missing their families um and it's and it's and i guess it's not just that it's also it's you know it's, it's particularly the ones with little kids we all get that you know it's a, it's a dental appointment the parent teacher night it's that hospital thing it's your sick mother it's a you know it's a it's your pool it's your lawn it's the roof that need to repair and it's all it's the million things you just don't think of in your day-to-day life uh that 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 everyone misses out on and you know i i just think and we're talking about professional sport here and um, you know, we often say, don't we, when you look at, at vision uh, of modern motorsport, you know, sadly, it often looks too easy because, you know, for such good camera technology and stabilisation, all those things, when Tony, you know, you know as well as anyone, how hard it is to drive one of these cars at the limit. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's a magnificent athletic feat for me uh, of mind and matter. So, you know, I, I now have some much regard, if you like, for for the additional mental stress that a lot of those drivers are under uh, in 
doing that. And and you know what? I was funny. I was thinking about this today. I I just wonder if we're starting to see a few little bits and pieces emerge that you know may disclose for good or for worse some differences in performance. You know, mm. because we're operating in an unusual environment. It's interesting because uh, we're seeing a lot of the families now, you know, either coming up to see the teams, uh, the drivers, uh, the mechanics, you know, the team owners, just to try and get some of that family connection. Uh, I know some of the mechanics have come back home and they must be doing some sort of uh, sort of switch over to fill that role. Yep. But it is sort of at that breaking point a little bit and we've still got a little bit to go. You know, we've got... Uh, Obviously, Townsville again this weekend. We've got two at Tail and Bend and then Bathurst. So we're still a month and a half at least away from, from coming home. Just at the track, how has your role sort of changed uh, in, the, in the commentary team? I mean, we see you with somebody holding a, a big stick and you're standing quite away from the driver or the, the team that you're speaking to. Is there less people on ground and have you had to cover more of that ground yourself? Yeah, so uh, that's my Freddie Mercury stick. Um, so that's uh, uh, that that that's that's kind of kind of okay. You know, we all get we've got to use that. You know, sometimes it's a little bit compromising because you need to be a bit close to drivers, as you know, Tony. In, in the pit lane environment, it's noisy. It's yeah. always noisy. Um, but but you know, if that's the worst we've got to do, so be it. But I mean, the whole broadcast uh, is compromised, and I think everyone associates doing a, a great job. You know, from from Nathan down, Nathan Prendergast, here, TV boss, he's actually back in the chair directing at the moment, which, yep. he, you know, he got out of that chair a couple of years ago, but Brian's stuck back in Sydney. So what we're trying very hard to do, and I think they're doing a great job of it, is if you're sitting at home watching the telecast, you probably, because we don't talk about it, um, you probably don't even know that the commentary team, as in Mark, Neil, Jess, mm. are sitting in Sydney uh, in, a, uh, in a studio and we're on the ground at events. And, and there's a time delay now when we do that. So there's a lot of little compromises, just a couple of the interesting bits, you know. So when we're on the ground in a telecast and we've got all the television trucks and the production and the editing and all that there, for example, all the pit lane camera vision is seen in the trucks all the time. So when you're down there on the pit lane and you're in a race and you're, you're looking at a pit stop or, you know, Tony D'Alberto comes in because he's whacked the wall on the left no. rear, which I think are really reasonably frequent occurrence. Um, you know, you can point the camera at the, the, my pit producer, Emma, can see that. Um, we might have a bit of a chat about it, then we go to air. Well, that feed doesn't exist in the current circumstance. So there's a lot more, more uh, a lot more get, guesswork, a bit of trust. So sometimes you'll see we're maybe not doing quite as much be, because there's just some, some complications. And then, of course, in my Hino hub world, mm. Which is what I'm doing now. When you've rung, I'm, I'm actually prepping a lot of the footage now myself uh, at home, which is cool because we actually make edit, uh, make and edit videos here at home anyway. Me and my son, we do it as a, a side business. And okay. um, but we've got, but we've got actually my graphics guy who helps me with the Hino Hub is again locked down back in Sydney. He's not travelling, so we're trying to do that remotely. Yep. And normally he's sitting right there with me in the pit bunker next to the hub, so we're we're at it all day. So. Uh, yeah, look, everyone's having a bit of a bit of a compromise, but uh, again, I think um, uh, everyone associated with the, with that broadcast. I mean, because you've got to remember, a lot of those people have been on the road for a long time. Mm. So even Scaife, Scaife stuck up in New South Wales, lives in Victoria, simply so he can commit to going and uh, doing the broadcast from the studios with the other with Crompo and, and Jess. I mean, that's yeah, okay. that's an enormous sacrifice from him that not enough people know about. He's got kids. That's the first time I think we've ever heard you uh, sympathetic for Mark Scaife, though. 
and it may be the only time you do here. So just clock that one. Uh, no, but I, I, you know, he's a, he's a he's a he's a terrific guy, mate. I've got a, a lot of warmth for Mark. He's uh, he's tough on the outer shell, but he's a good human being. And I mean, he's like anyone at the moment. He's mm. away from his wife and kids, and probably not liking it any more than anyone else. But but we all understand, as you guys do that we all have a commitment to keep the show on the road because if we don't put it to air, the funds don't flow and the sport mm. dies. I guess it's probably how you summarise it, isn't it? So I think everyone knows that they're doing their bit to keep the show alive. Well, I think supercars have done a fantastic job. Aside from when they got racing again at Sydney Motorsport Park, all the iRacing stuff or uh, E-Series, uh, I thought was fantastic the way they broadcasted all, all of that. Um, so as I mean, I've, I've been a spectator the last sort of five months watching uh, the races intently, trying to uh, you know see how everyone, everybody's going. And from the outside, the broadcast looks the same. I, I couldn't pick a lot of that. And I sort of twigged a little bit that the commentary team weren't at the circuit, but I wasn't entirely sure. Um, generally, we see uh, a little bit of footage from Scafi and that. You might see in the background the pit lane or something like that. But uh, that was the only thing that really gave it away. So. I think uh, well, that's good, mate. If that's coming choice. from you, if that's coming from you, Tony, that that's great. So that's the. Uh, I mean, we're not hiding from it, but we're just no. not. There's no need to publicise the fact. So it's. Uh, I'm really pleased that uh, you're saying that. And 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 the final point to all of this: just imagine being, um, you know, Sean Seymour, the commission, mm. the board of Supercars, trying to do the calendar at the moment. Oh. Like seriously, and you go in here, and then that border shuts, and then you go in there, and that border shuts, and uh, you know, I, mate, I, I really feel for the business at the moment because mm. now you're, you're sitting down, you know, they're, they're just completing the next television deal. They're trying to put together a calendar, obviously, to talk about with their television partners. You know, imagine the difficulty in doing that and how many additional clauses, I'm only guessing, must need to be in that sort of contract. So, wow, what a nightmare. Same as other sports, same mm. as business. I mean, it's uh, it's it's just it's how it's one of the tough things. Sorry, one of the tough things will be for the teams, I think, coming out of this is as all experienced in our motor racing careers is that you know marketing budgets are often the first to get trimmed in tough times mm. so uh mm. i think it's kind of good that we're sort of in lockstep with you know gen 3 and all the chat even prior to that about reducing costs so this is maybe something that we've needed for 20 years to force the sport to reduce some costs so there might be a good outcome at all at the end of this i'm sure there will be now, Larko, you you are my favourite commentator on the broadcast. Now, I'm not just saying that because you're on our parked up podcast today. The thing that I <laughs> Thanks, love, mate. the thing I love about uh, your commentary and the way you approach it is, uh, you explain things in a way that if you're not in a motorsport enthusiast, you're going to absolutely understand what you're saying and uh, all those special little nuances that you know a race engineer might understand. But the average Joe, they don't quite grasp it. And I think you do a really good job to break that down and give people a really nice understanding of what the, the sport means and what the teams are facing as well. Mate, I'm, I'm flattered coming from you, Tony. I really appreciate that, mate. That's very nice of you. Can I say it's probably two reasons. One, I am just a simple person. <laughs> um, uh, so I keep it simple. Um, probably three. The second thing is genuinely, mate, and you know me well enough, I really consider myself just like our fan base. Mm. I am one of them. I, I was before I started racing. You know, I've, I've grown up in a small country town. I'm just an, I, I, I guess I'm your typical Aussie bloke. So there's not too much fanfare around me. I'm, I'm, I'm happy and comfortable in my own skin. And I think if you step up to the camera and, and be that person and talk, talk simply, because I actually reckon it'd be really easy for me to get 
caught up, and you've nailed it here because it is easy to do, and I've had to resist myself trying to impress your engineering mates down the pit lane uh, about your knowledge. But I, I, I actually, I do very much try and think. Hang on, there's a portion of our fan base that'll tune in and watch a telecast no matter what you dish up to them, right? Because they'll yell and scream and cast and spit, but they'll watch it till they drop. Then for me, there's a much, much, much bigger audience that will watch sport more generically, whatever it is. Um, and they're the ones you've got to capture. Uh, and so if you can, like anything, you know, I don't watch tennis, but we all play tennis. You know, I don't watch a lot of football, but we all played football. And sometimes when there's rule changes, you know, what's a 2040 or is that, you know, what's a 1540, you know, just to stop and explain some basics to us. I think we have a lot of assumed knowledge in our game. Mm. Um, and Crompo was a great mentor for me in this regard. He's always from the start, although he's at the, you know, he's at the front, he's the, you know, the mouth of the wordsmith of our telecast. Does a beautiful job. Um, he gave me great advice many years ago about doing it this way and uh, about the wider audience. And, I, and, and, and it's, Bang on. And so, um, yeah, mate, I just keep it simple and be me and try and have a bit of fun because at the end of the day, we are in the, the entertainment business. And sometimes I think, you know what, I even have to pull up some of the engineers in pit lane and say, boys, including one on the weekend, we're not saving kids' cancer. We're going motor racing, for God's sake. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Sometimes I think we've just got to keep some perspective. No, we love what we love what you guys do, and it's certainly been a. It's helped us through our uh, lockdown misery down here in Melbourne. That uh, is for <laughs> sure. Now uh, we've seen Scotty McLaughlin have a terrific run through the through the Darwin events. Jamie Winkup chips some points away from him at Townsville, and we've got one more Townsville event to go as well. Four championship events remain. How do you see the series playing out from here? Um, without the word of a lie, grand hand on heart, I'm genuinely excited because of the pressure Jamie's putting back on Scott. We saw on Saturday in qualifying um, that team can can fail like anyone else. And I was standing there right in that garage, and I tell you, they were scratching their heads. Um, you know, uh, so – and Jamie, um, I want to talk about him a little more in next week's telecast. I've just been preparing a couple of things, but – I mean, let's face it, as, as great as Scott McLaughlin is, and he, if he sticks around here, will, I'm sure, possibly go on to be our greatest. But at the moment, he's still only in the first third of his career. Um, Jamie, who, let's be honest, after three championships, I remember looking at him that year and thinking, you know what, he's tired, he's jaded, I reckon he's about done. And he look, look what he's gone on to achieve. And now, he, at, what is he, 38? I think he's 38 years old. He's driving as fast as when he was 24 years old. And not only that, as we said on the weekend, he's somehow doing that and using less rubber than anyone in the field. I mean, just utterly, utterly brilliant. And clearly that's putting pressure on the team next door. And uh, I, I think that's magnificent when you've got 300 points up for grabs at Bathurst. I mean, it's this for me is is wide open. And, and Tony, I guess you'd be... You know, interested to know because even the both those Shell Mustangs uh, in that qualifying session, I watched them. They they, they went out, um, did that run that was ordinary. Both of them come out, bits mm. were coming out of the cars in the qualify in between those little qualifying runs. Front shock absorbers going on, which is really really unusual for those guys. Usually their cars they do very little in between those qualifying sessions. Mm. And I just wonder, and it's, and it's not at all a criticism, 
because, you know, I talk it up, as does Scaifey and Crompo, because we think it's a great thing. Scott always arrives first session. Everyone's banging springs and camber changes mm. and toe changes and all sorts of changes on their cars. So I just running around and around and around and around, seeing what the deck's going to be on an old set of tyres, punching out numbers, right? What did you do on the weekend? 21 laps, I think it was. Yep. Right? Now, I just wonder if that's now maybe caught up with them because everyone else got a little bit of a jump because you only got to go 10 feet next door. And I tell you, there was a lot of springs and shock changes thrown at those cars in that first practice session. Um, yeah, so, I, I watched that I, session and I, I know the comment that everyone was making is, you know, showing a lot of confidence and obviously the boys are pretty confident in their package. But um, I spoke with Fabs on Saturday evening and he was pretty happy with his race car. Uh, he thought he had a little bit too much understeer and he wanted a bit more turn. And then I yep. watched the qualifying session the next day and uh, the onboard footage of Scott doing his lap and I thought, ooh, that looks edgy that looks hard to drive yep. it was just sort of unusual amount of steering work uh, from scott um so they obviously did make a change to the car in between the interesting thing, interesting thing was though you know they, they came back on the change for scott and he was able to get pole i think it was probably a harder pole than what he's had previously um uh, but for fabs he couldn't quite find that uh that game back but yeah. I think Triple uh, Eight have always been very strong at uh, Townsville, and I'm not sure exactly why, but I think uh, Penske sort of thought they might be under pressure, and to have another weekend of it as well, um, they're going to have to tidy the car up to try and challenge Triple Eight. And, and isn't that the game, Tony? I mean, when when Scott's not having a good weekend, who's there to capitalise on it? Mm, Jamie. Yeah. Um, you know, just I, I love the way he does that, and I love the way during his whole career. When Jamie's having a really bad weekend, I remember that one at Wanneroo years ago where they were right at the back of the grid. They just got completely lost for a weekend or two there. Mm. Um, and even, you know, when we went away from Twin Springs. But Jamie's the best in the field at capitalising on a bad situation. So um, if that means he gets, you know, a, a fifth and a seventh and an eighth, he'll always do that. He'll never put it in the sand trap trying to get it up further, mm. you know, to me, which is championship winning stuff. So isn't it hiding up? And, you know, let's add to that. How cool is it that, you know, Team 18 are firing? Look at the speed mm. Scott Pye had on the weekend. Yeah. Isn't it cool that Brad Jones racing? You know, look at Nick Perk at every event now, every circuit, fast, slow and in between, faster than in the game. Isn't it brilliant that Tickford are firing now? Mm. Um, so this to me, it's, it's almost like it's coming to a crescendo at exactly the right time. And now, you know, Will Davo jumping in with waters. Wow, how cool is that? <laughs> um, I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely excited about where this is headed to finish off the year. I reckon it's... It's really hotting up. Well, it gets to head to the uh, the best place of all, the Bathurst 1000, and that will wrap everything up. Do you think that our title contenders, and let's face it, there probably might only be two by the time we get there in a month and a bit's time, do you think they'll be uh, thinking championship and, and rolling out of the throttle if someone's having a having a big go in the big, biggest race that we have? It's a hard one, isn't it? You know, and you, you, that's a hard question to always answer, uh, Grant. And, you know, everyone's maybe got their different interpretation. But I reckon, having been a race driver a long time ago, and Tony would probably answer the same question, I reckon if you're in the moment at Bathurst, I reckon you're in the moment at Bathurst. I, I just think, you know, if there's a, a chance you've got to take and you know what the reward is on the other side of that, and that's that trophy, that Peter Brock trophy, um, I reckon... I don't know too many that wouldn't take it. And Jamie Winkup has been great evidence of that over the years, hasn't he? He will always try to race win 
uh, at Bathurst, you know, risk overtaking a safety car, risk fuel. Um, <laughs> no, but, but, no, but he's done it. I mean, he just, he just, you know, turn, I reckon he must turn the radio down some days. But I, but I love that, and I love that about Jamie. It's win or nothing. Um, so, um, you know, and I, I just, I just envisage a red hot contest up there. You know, I, I, I hate anyone when we get close. They start predict. You know, can you predict who's going to win? No. Yeah. Maybe uh, maybe in the last ten laps of the race we'll uh, we'll have that little game. You shoot me a text. <laughs> so the, the the sports done a terrific job during this time. Super difficult as we've covered, but there are some some huge questions over the future of the category. Gen three, you touched on it just before. You touched on it during the broadcast as well. I saw you put your arm over the rear wing of a car. You even put a, <laughs> um, the rear end of an A nine X on the uh, on the back of one of those Mustangs. Um, but what, so, what's your take? You know, what the, like lots of questions, but. You know the teams are they're they're hurting, and oh, look, everyone's hurting. Doesn't matter what industry you're in, but I guess the question is, how much do you throw out, and how much do you keep? And, and, and that is the question, Grant. And you know, there's a, the, the organisation's obviously doing an enormous amount of work on it. Um, firstly, I'd say the really cool thing about supercars is that what whatever does happen, whichever direction it goes, underlining that, and you've heard Sean Seymour say it plenty of times. You know, we're going to be big loud, brash, in your face. Uh, and to me, that's the most important thing. And if I can just uh, indulge on that little topic just for a moment. I mean, there's over many years, and I was back racing with my own team in the day when, you know, the two-litre onslaught come in, the, you know, the, the, the early mid-90s. Um, you know, and we, then we saw it again. And then, you know, I guess the question's around now, which direction do we go? And uh, and even Roland Dane and I have talked about this a lot because he's come from that BTCC background. But... One of the things I've always done, I think we all agree on, is that one of the beautiful things about our category that's not it's not replicated anywhere in the world is that our cars are big, right? They're a tonne and a half. They've got a V8 in them, and we run on circuits where we typically have plenty of curbs. So the word I use is express body language. Our cars express body language, and they monster the television screen. Um, and you just don't see that in a lot of other categories, and... And and I don't know, I reckon as long as we hang on to that and, and the V8 is critical. You know, I was standing down last year, I was walking along underneath the grandstand to where our television compound is underneath there, and there's a little opening, and it was one of the practice sessions, and the little opening sort of opens out onto the straight there, and I just stood there and listened to the V8s that were probably doing 7,200 RPM, Tony, I don't know, middle of the straight there, mm-hmm. two-thirds down the straight. Yep. And I just stopped, and you know, for a bloke like me who's been around it nearly all my life, I just stopped and thought how beautiful they sounded. And I also then reflected on when F1 uh, did what they did, and then they started advertising for acoustic engineers to try and find ways to make the cars sound better. So, <laughs> so I, I saw that ad in auto support. So, so don't ever ever underestimate the power of the sound and the visuals, the optics. For me, all of that stuff's paramount in the entertainment world over what this manufacturer is doing or what that manufacturer wants to do so i hope we're we're finally maybe come to the intersection that says are we manufacturer relevant or are we entertainment i think it's becoming increasingly evident uh that we are entertainment but i'm excited about some of the things i'm hearing like you know some some, some modification of roll cage so the car can best represent what it what it, what it looks like retention of v8 etc and so on but to go to your point grant i think the big question up and down pit lane in the short to medium term is, you know, how quickly do we go there? How much of the stuff to, that we've got now do we make 
done it and tear up because that costs money. Everyone's going to be hurting. So there's sort of there's some that like the idea of quick, let's get to something cheaper and simpler uh, and easier to build, as in a full Gen 3 thing, as quickly as possible. Um, others saying, let's hang on to what we've got for a bit longer. So, you know, uh, I think we're, you know, it's, it's all pretty well publicised. It's looking like, you know, 2022. Um, I, I'd suggest there'll be plenty of consensus. And I think a lot of that consensus will be driven by what COVID's done to industry more widely. I think it's a great opportunity to really simplify uh, what we do with engine, what we do with cars. And I hope as much as anything, which, you know, we've already started on this trajectory of dropping some aero off the car, I'm sure we're going to see more of that. And I think that's a really good thing. But you'd agree that uh, I know you put your arm over that rear wing uh, probably as a little bit of a joke, but you'd, you'd agree that we do we do need those big wings or, or some sort of, you know, aero device on the back. If, if it's not for uh, an advantage on the track, at least for aesthetics, at least to make the cars look like, you know, big race cars. However you do it. In fact, I'd go for the A9X guards as well, Grant, if I'm really honest. I mean, anything, <laughs> anything. Yeah, no, but I, often, I say to people often, you know, I mean, what a great place it would be for, say, a brand like Kia. Um, because look what, look what supercars did for Volvo, the brand. You know, one of my best mates is a Volvo guy. You know, he's not a bowler hat in the back parcel shelf type of guy, but that's been how Volvo owners have been typified for years. Along comes Volvo, plays the supercar game with, with engines and components that are not even bits they were using in their road cars, but no one cared about that. It was actually the brand marketing. It was the fact that Volvo had a badge on the front of that bonnet and said, we go racing, we compete. Now, just apply that to Kia for a minute. And I'm not, I, I know nothing about what, what Kia or Kia's intentions or anyone else for that matter. I'm not close enough to that side of it. I'm just making the point, well, what a great format to be able to go in to have cost-effective cars, cost-effective engines, without having to say to a manufacturer, oh, you know, you need to be around for five years and spend 10 million bucks a year to get up to speed and then maybe you can hire Craig Lowndes. Well, no, under our current format and where the business is increasingly heading, you should be able to go into Brad Jones Racing as a manufacturer, and say, right, you know, we'll, uh, we'd like to run our cars. Literally, silhouette of the car, some of the DNA of the car. I love the fact over NASCAR, the fact that we run the wind-licked surfaces, surfaces of the car. For me, that's the most paramount thing we do to keep us relevant to the road car, and I reckon that's fabulous. But we just, as you alert to Grant, we've got to put the cars on steroids. So they've got to be, you know, a little bit wider, a little bit lower, a little bit fatter, a little bit tougher. Yeah, some wings and bits and pieces on them to, to toughen them up a bit. But I don't believe we need the levels of downfall that we currently have. Um, that We need to do whatever we can to encourage vehicles travelling at different speeds at the same time on the track without doing it falsely um, and without doing it just with tyres. We need to have some other mechanisms and one the ways to do that is to obviously have less aero driver mistakes good tires still but degrade quickly uh, that back teams into you know different strategy options we love that so I, I, all in all i actually think the i think the, the the sport for my take is charting in the in the right course in the current environment because we've you know environments changed That's, we've lost holden we've lost ford um and you know I, I think you know we've got to move to react to that and do you think that the sport can survive without any manufacturer backing? Or do you think like some level of support from a car brand is important? Look, I think one of the real benefits of, of any manufacturer backing are actually what they do around and away from the sport, not just in the sport. 
you know, but it's, it's, you know, again, let's just go back to the Volvo incident. I can remember walking into every airport in Australia and that those great big massive LED Volvo um, uh, promotional boards up there with Scott McLaughlin and his Volvo on it. Well, wow. You know, I mean, that's invaluable to our sport. So, so, so manufacturing involvement is really good from that perspective, isn't it? So they can do something. That's why I think we've got to keep aligned with manufacturers in terms of their, uh, you know, as I say, badge marketing, I call it, um, and, and some of the peripheral stuff they do around it. But I think we've got to protect them, which we are, from having to be like F1 where it's, a, you know, this massive development curve and homologation curve you've got to go on. Forget all that crap. Let's just um, give them an easy path in uh, to showcase um cars with sex appeal i mean yeah so um and to answer your specific question grant can it survive without manufacturers yes it can because mate you can go back to board minutes when i was on the board for eight years back in the sort of early 2000s late 90s i was often preaching that exact point because there was such a disparity back then between manufacturer supported teams and what i'd call ordinary teams that it was always going to be the two manufacturer teams that were at the front. And that's exactly what played out. And that was because on your vehicles, you have a real estate value. Um, and the marketplace will determine basically what that real estate value is. For manufacturer teams, they could always afford uh, to put in much more than the real estate value of the real estate, you know, the real estate on the car, obviously, which made it really hard to bridge that gap between, you know, sponsorship and a manufacturer-supported team. Now, I take nothing away from anything that was achieved and, and, and the, the best teams always got the manufacturer support, as it should be. But um, I actually like the thought of a world because we don't know where the world's going. So I think to protect our sport, I, love a, I would love a pit lane where the cost of being competitive is equivalent to the real estate value of the car at the time. And we, we kind of know roughly what that is. So that then means what it is, mate, it's the, it's the shells, it's the super cheaps, it's the Penrites, you know, it's the Monster Energy. It's those brands that are actually propping the sport rather than reliance on manufacturers. And I only say that because manufacturers, are, you know, a come and go. We have a very small market in this country. It's split by way, way too many models. Uh, there's not enough volume. Um, you know, it, it's tough. And, you know, we've got, you know, electric cars on the horizon. Uh, don't get me going on that one. Um, and, 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 and everything else in between. So it's really, really, really difficult. So I think the smart players to, you know, we focus on entertainment and we focus on giving um, the high street sponsors, you know, a, a good experience in our sport. And I think that's, that's, that's starting to show very much the case because there is, you know, if you're really truthful, mate, there's not a lot of manufacturer support down the pit lane at the moment in terms of pure funds. Mate, we could keep asking and asking and asking, but uh, we'll leave you uh, to uh, to fix up the farm before you've got to duck back off to Townsville and enjoy the sun, something that we're definitely not enjoying down here in Melbourne. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Larko, mate, we appreciate your time and we thank you so much for joining Tony and myself on Parked Up. Always good to have a chat, boys. And, yep, same, mate. I look forward to seeing you guys back on the pit lane and hopefully it's not too far away. See you, mate. See, I told you that was going to be a good chat.
<laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I ever doubted that. <laughs> of course, it was going to be a good chat, and we could have spoken to him for a long, long longer as well. He's, he's super passionate about the sport. It really comes through. You know, he's a yeah. great advocate for supercars, but just motorsport in general. And he obviously knows, you know, what is important for supercars going forward. And I think he makes a lot of sense with some of the comments he's saying about Gen 3. Uh, we spoke with uh, Kim Jones recently and he was saying, please no Gen 3. But, um, you know, I think if it's done in the right way, like Larko suggesting, you know, for some of the cost saving and the entertainment aspect, it's going to be a win-win. Uh, actually, I've got a, just a real quick Larko story that I should tell. We so do Lark- like stories. Larko was the very first news chat, news story that I ever got myself. It was 1997. It was prior to the Oran Park round, and he was doing a uh, fan meeting, fan signing thing at the local Mitre 10. He was sponsored by Mitre 10 at the time. And uh, I went down there completely as a fanboy. I actually really liked Larko in his uh, first couple of years of supercars. He started in 95 and was and really struggled with that first car that they built. Mm. Um, and I was, I was surprised how chatty he was. It wasn't very busy on that day. And uh, I asked him how was he going and he signed the poster for me. And I think he might have even asked me how I was going. And I thought, oh, wow, hang on, Mark Larkham's <laughs> asking me how I am. This is awesome. Um, so I actually asked him, uh, who have you got as your co-driver for the endurance races, which were coming up? Did you have your helmet with you? With, like, were you putting no, your hand no, up? No, no, no. I was, uh, I was, six, I was 16, so uh, not quite ready for a Sandown <laughs> 500 or Bathurst 1000 start. But he told me that Andrew Medecki was coming to drive his car, and it hadn't actually been announced yet. It was uh, the announcement for that was coming up, I think, during that weekend of, of racing or something like that. So it was kind of the first time I found out news before I'd watched a broadcast or bought mm. Auto Action or Motorsport News or or whatever. You know, this was well before the days of Twitter and Facebook and and all of those things. So um, that was kind of the very first time I got an insight into a new story before it actually got broken and it was a bit of a light bulb moment for me i sort of realized oh so that's how the stories happen you ask them questions and you get an answer (laughs) it wasn't for another few years before i started to be a journalist but that was the very first story that i that i got where you know i didn't know know before so i thought i thought that was pretty cool and when i joined the professional world of of uh, the journalisms and following race cars Larko was always one of the best to speak to he'd always give you way more than you asked for and you know it's no wonder he's Mm. such a great success on on the broadcast and and we love watching him speaking of great success though grant Mm -hmm. we are up to episode 24 yep parked up Mm -hmm. still powered by race fields we are that's pretty cool 24 episodes man yeah, it is pretty cool. We started rolling them out on Sundays, and now we're typically on Mondays. But it's um, always me that has to change the date. Yeah, though. We, we're you're always a available late, a day late this time. Well, I, yeah, it's but it's always me. Can we change it? Can we do this? Can we do that? Nah, it's I'm okay. just a pain in the ass, really, aren't I? Pretty much. Yeah, they're your words, not mine. Um, okay, well, that's just about going to wrap it up. We should uh, give a quick plug to the final round of the car sales. TCR Australia Sim Racing Series. 
you're taking your little simulator over mm. to Macau to do the final round. You're coming off the back of a podium. <laughs> Big podium. A geez. massive podium on the streets of Adelaide. And now you go into the streets of Macau to, uh, to burn around that little did track. Have you done much practice? I did a bit of practice on the weekend, but I had to go into the settings and turn the damage off because I could barely make it around a lap uh, without damaging the car. So that's going to be really interesting. Super tight circuit, over crests and... You know, there's going to be a lot of carnage. So they have no business actually having a real motor race around that place. No, that's right. I mean, and to make a pass, you're pretty much going to have to lunge someone. So uh, I feel like I know which way the track goes now. But you know, I think if you damage the car early, you're going to be nursing it for the rest of the rest of the race. But anyway, it'll be interesting to see. I'm actually a little thankful that it is the last round uh, of the championship because that means that we're going to go real racing soon. It's every day that ticks by. Every time that sun goes down <laughs> and the moon comes up, we're, we're one, one day closer if, to going racing. If that makes you feel better at night and you sleep a little better, mate, then uh, that's the way you can think about it. But, no, it's exciting stuff. So looking forward to that one. And, yeah, it does mean that TCR, fingers crossed, will have a calendar soon. Yep, not too far away. we can away. go racing. Do you have any insight? We'll see. No insight just yet. Oh, you never tell me Off anything. Off the record. Randy. Never tell me anything. I've got I've got I've got nothing. But we're How not, many times we're this not year, too though, far away. How many times this year have you put something out and you do all the press releases for TCR ARG in general, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And I've literally just spoken to you and say, Hey, what's the goss? You give me nothing. And two seconds later, there's something that comes up in my uh, email, a press release. And I'm like, mate, did you not think that was useful information for me? Like, yeah, well, you can find out when everyone else does. I hope uh, <laughs> Matt, Matt Braid and uh, all the brass at ARG are listening to that. Oh, Thank I you can, very much. I can sincerely say to Matt Braid, John McMillan, all the guys that own ARG, that you don't let anything out before the press release comes out. That's it. That and is, it shits me. That's how the professionals meant to be work, mates. Tony. We're meant to be mates. <laughs> All right, that's it. Before this mateship is over, let's end this right here, right now. Episode 24 of Parked Up, powered by the race fuels, is in the can. Of course, we also thank our other sponsor, motorsportwebsites.com.au. We also thank Mark Larkham and all the other people that joined us. Tony D, we'll see you next week. You will. See you then.